come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, George. All right, let's do this. Some of you uh, may have played a part in the craze that swept social media uh, just a few months ago known as FaceApp. Anybody, uh, anybody remember FaceApp? These crazes, they come and go so quickly these days that just even weeks on, we forget that we were part of something truly momentous. And indeed, a few uh, weeks and months ago, we were. We, many of us were part of FaceApp. Now, for those that don't know, FaceApp was the craze whereby we could uh, take a picture of us, a real-life current picture, and put it through this special filter and then it would show us with, uh, we hope, a reasonable degree of accuracy, or we hope not, depending on what the outcome was, <laughs> what we would look like in uh, a series of decades' time. That was what FaceApp was all about. And we all went crazy for it, at least some of us did. And uh, we slightly sort of cooled down in it when we realized it was just a ruse for the Russians to gather all our information <laughs> and that we'd been hacked, or at least that's what the story was. And anyway, here's a picture of me. And this is what I will look like, <coughs> yeah, by the way, wearing this, this very jacket. And I will say this, if when I am uh, whatever age this is, if I'm still wearing this jacket, please come and take it off me. <laughs> that won't be appropriate. But it was, uh, <laughs> all of this made me think of something that George Orwell said. Orwell said that at 50, at 50, every man has the face he deserves. At 50, every man has the face he deserves. And what Orwell was saying there was that over the period of a human life, our, our posture, if you like, our, our face, but also our whole bodies, begins to reflect the life that we've led. In other words, what we end up looking like in our old age isn't an accident simply defined and determined by the genetic profile that we uh, were born with. It's not just determined in that way. In fact, our, our whole physicality, our body is, in, in some ways, it's flexible, it's plastic. We can shape it. We can change it by the way that we live. And that, that's, about, uh, that's also about our, our physicality, our body, if you like, our posture. You see, don't you, some <clears throat> uh, people of more advanced years uh, whose, whose bodies literally have etched into them their lives, whether that be scars, it could be uh, wrinkles, uh, or, or maybe even something posture, maybe a hunched back, or, a, or maybe a limp because they played lots of sport, or something like that. Our, our postures become defined over time by the lives that we've led. Or we might put it this way, our gestures become our postures, those little things we do with our hands or our face, that sort of worried look we have begins to be etched in the lines above our head, or if we're particularly given to smiling, you see these lines, and you guys, you think you'll never get them. <laughs> but you will. Our kids, two of whom are just in there, in that room, just watching the Netflix. <clears throat> they, they, every so often they say to Amy and I, I said, Mom, Dad, what are those worms on your forehead? <laughs> They're not worms. Uh, you put those there, kids. <laughs> is what we say. Now, we want to develop, 
as Christians, as people, as people who are trying to shape their lives around the person of Jesus Christ, and that's what a Christian is, and you might not be one of those just now, but if you were, you would say that my, our intention as Christians is to become people who are shaped around his life, so much so that our posture becomes like his posture. And so the question is this, is if Jesus were in my life, if he were in my body, what kind of life would he be leading? And how can I lead that life today? What gestures would be required today in order that when I'm older, I might have, might have a posture that's more like Jesus' posture? And I don't think there's anywhere, any, any space, any particular area of discipleship, this whole thing of following Jesus, that's more significant in developing a posture like Jesus than our attitude to money. Oh. <laughs> and you were, you, were, you were so interested. You were loving it. You were with me. And then I said, money, money. But Jesus talks about money so much, so often, because Jesus knew that actually the, the way that we develop a posture of openness, of receptivity to the things of God is partly through, one of the key ways is through developing a gestures of generosity. And it must be said that the church hasn't always done a great job of talking about this. And maybe we've gone in one of two directions. On the one side, we've sort of ignored it because like sex and politics, we all know as good Brits that money should stay in the private sphere. Or on the other hand, we've been part of a, maybe a tradition that's used money as some kind of coercion, something to manipulate people with. And neither one of those is where we want to be, but we, we can't not talk about money. You know, a friend of mine has a friend. So this is a, a friend of a friend story. And when it's a friend of a friend story, you've sort of got to, you know, just got to bear that in mind. But I think this is actually, this happened. So there we go. A friend of a friend was in a Christian conference uh, fairly recently. And they said that in one of these seminars, you know, these afternoon teaching things that some of us uh, choose not to go to on principle because <clears throat> they're in our free time. Uh, the person who was uh, teaching just began to say, look, what I want to do, everyone had just sat down and said, look, what I want to do this, this, in this session is to look at what Christians need to do in connection to the area of money. I want to look at what, uh, what we earn, about how Christians should spend what they have, and about how much they should give. And apparently in that moment, right at the beginning of the seminar, 60% of the congregation left. Now, I've got to be honest, I'm hoping to keep 50% of you this evening. <laughs> so, Mabara's life. <laughs> but what does that say? What does that say about our level of comfort with this whole area of money? Maybe the question, maybe it shows that some think, some of us think, that what we do with our money is a private matter. And yet Jesus suggests and assumes that it's not a private matter. That in fact it's a discipleship matter. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of following him. Indeed the question maybe shouldn't be what we should do with our money, but is it really 
our money at all? This is, these are questions that Christians, people who are concerned about following Jesus need to be asking. Stanley Hauvas, a, a theologian, an ethicist, he argued that Christians should be asked when they enter the church building what they earn so that we can see if they're living generous lives. Now, fear not, we're not about to start doing that and some of you are like, I'm here on student debt, baby. I'm not taking any of my debt. <clears throat> However, we're not going to go that far, but neither are we going to shy away from a discussion about what it means to be generous because we want to be people who are shaped, whose postures become like the posture of Jesus. And this isn't something primarily that uh, God or the church wants from us. This is something I believe that God wants for us. So what can we learn? Open your Bible. Crack out your iPhone or similar, Samsung or Galaxy, whatever it is that the Utah today is in. And we're going to uh, go to Mark chapter 12. All right. Craig's already read it to us. But what we see here is, uh, and from verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Okay, the first line makes it obvious that, that giving, at least in biblical times, giving, the first thing I want to say is that giving is, that it is to be regular. We have here a picture of a whole group of people at a time where the temple would be bustling with people just coming in and, and giving their gifts. And it says that, uh, it says that uh, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. This is a present continuous thing. It continually happens. In fact, in this area of the temple, it's probably the court of the women where everybody would be welcome to be. There were 13 different receptacles. There's a word that you haven't heard for a while. Receptacle. Stations where money could be given. 13 different ones, and it would just be like, you know, buzzing, people just dropping money in left, right, and center. This was a practice for God's people. And in fact, the baseline practice was, would be that God's people would bring the tithe. They would bring the first tenth of the produce that they'd received. And it was, a, it was an act of faith to give the tithe, because you would do it right at the beginning of the harvest. And then you would wait seven weeks, and at the end of the harvest, when you actually knew what had come in, you would give a free will offering out of, you hoped, the abundance that God had given you. This is a practice. God's people had been shaped in this practice of, of generosity. And it was a, a dangerous adventure of faith. Because if you gave the tenth, and the weather was bad, and the harvest didn't come in, you were dependent solely upon God. And that's how it was, it was regular. And actually we see this later on, don't we, in Acts, the same picture of regular giving. It says they, that is the early disciples, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In other words, all the spiritual stuff that we've come here tonight to do. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. That's the stuff we're hoping is going to happen at the end of the service. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions. It goes on. That's the bit we're a little bit less keen on because we're rampant capitalists. And we love the idea of private ownership. And so the concept of common ownership, the concept of sharing feels a little bit dangerous. Dare I say it, a bit communist. 
But what we see in the early church is this practice of of just sharing, open-handed sharing. And it was regular. All the time. Hey, you have a need. Great. Can I meet that need? Do you see it's instinctual? It's instinctive. It's a gesture that's developed itself into a posture, even in the early stage of the life of the church. We know this is the way that life works, don't we? Which of you would expect to rock up to the gym once a year and expect to have sculpted your guns? To expect to have guns like these? (laughs) Once a year. In fact, you can have guns like these in much less than going to the gym once a year. But we know, don't we? We know that that's the way it works, that regularity is key if we're going to become what we want to become. And it's no different in this area. And in this area, particularly in this area, there is a challenge to us. And I think for many of us, and dare I say it, many of us who are, who are younger as well, we will probably, we, we might need to have a bit of a revolution in our thinking. And I'm going to illustrate this with uh, some piggy banks, folks. What we see here is three basic ways of thinking about how money is spent. On the right-hand side of the thing, we have discretionary spending. This is like the stuff that we just spend if we've got it. So uber-expensive coffee, that's my vice. You know, three quid plus on a car. You know, if I've got money, literally, almost literally to burn, right, that's what I spend it on. And you'll have your own stuff, treating yourself. In the middle, we have monthly variables. This is a stuff that's pretty, pretty common, but it doesn't necessarily happen every month. For, if you're a little uh, older, it might be some kind of car expense, or maybe it's uh, something else. It just pops up, a holiday or whatever else. Gifts for somebody, a birthday thing or whatever. And on the left-hand side, we've got fixed items. This is your rent. This is your fees or whatever else that it is that comes in every month. Now, most of us or many of us, when we begin a journey of giving, we think that giving belongs on the right-hand side. It's the thing that, look, if I've got a little bit end, left at the end of the month, I'll come to church and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll tip him or I'll tip God for what he's done for me or something like that. But actually, we've got to move that, our perspective on giving from the right-hand side over all the way to the left. That it becomes actually part of just who we are. This is like a, a regular gesture, something we just do. It becomes part of the core of who we are. And the best way to give, uh, certainly in a church like this, we would say, is by, is by do, just a standing order. Out of your account, if, if you're going to give, just give in that way. Beginning of the month, just give in that way. It's, first, it's easy for us, but it also becomes part of the regular part of your life. And that's been uh, my, my journey and Amy's journey, which we'll be speaking, I'll be speaking about as we go. So the first thing, that giving, if it's going to become a posture that shapes our lives, that actually changes us, it needs to be regular. Secondly, ah, it's got to be communal. It's got to be communal. It's got to be something that's shared. It's not just a, just a private thing. It's something that's shared. And we see this, don't we, in this picture of the widow's offering. There's all these different people in the temple. And they're all at the same time coming and giving. They're in the place of worship. They're in the place of God's presence. And they come and they give. It says many rich people, many rich people threw in large amounts. And a poor widow 
came and put in two very small coins. We see this, this is hubbub, this movement, it's dynamic, it's active, it's loud, and people come and give. And in the uh, Acts scripture, we see the same thing, that this is a, a common thing. All the believers, all the believers, verse 44 of Acts chapter two, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property. See, this is, this is a shared adventure. I'd love to reframe our thinking around generosity, around adventure. This is a shared adventure. How many of you have come across like crowdfunding? Right, we've all done it. Hey, you've got, you've got a friend that's got like a creative project. I did this for a friend recently. They want to write an album or they've got some kind of thing that they're really keen to get started, a business. Seen it done with businesses. And they, so they say, well, how can I, how can I actually leverage my, leverage my friendships and do something together? It's just an exciting thing to do. I, I was part of, I was part of um, helping my friend do an album not so long ago. It's this incredible piece of, piece of art. It's this incredible uh, record. George would appreciate that. Because, by the way, if you like music and you really like music, you call them records, not albums. Have you noticed that? Anyway, <clears throat> that's just one for the, uh, for the music geeks. Uh, my friend helped him get this album together and produce this album. And this thing comes out and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. How much more is it amazing when we see people's lives transformed as part of the people of God and we say, I was part of that. My, my small contribution, such as it is, played a part in that whole person's life being transformed. Like, Guys, there is no better way to invest your time, your talent, and your treasure than in the kingdom of God. It's better even than getting your best mate's business off the ground. Because this is eternal transformation. You know, that album, ultimately, amazing. Let's produce the best stuff we can. But, you know, this is somebody's life. It lasts forever and ever. It is incredible. This is the beginning here in Acts 2 of crowdfunding. We have all the believers together bringing what they have, offering their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Join the crowd. Join the crowd. Join the movement of people who are saying that I want to be part of this so much that I'm actually willing to step beyond my own personal interest. Maybe even my own sense of security that's rooted in confidence in money. I want to step beyond that and into this movement of people who say generosity is more important. I'm more interested in the kingdom than I am my own financial security. Or I should say securing my own financial security. And for Amy and I, this began in our early 20s, and many of you are at that stage now. And I want to tell you tonight, now is the time to start, because you will be reaping a benefit in 15 years, uh, the benefit that we are reaping now. And there's many of you who are 15 years and beyond older than us, who are so much further on in this journey than we are. And I want to say this to you, we want to be where you are when, you're, when we're that age. Because that's the whole point that we're developing and we're growing in generosity all the time. But if it doesn't begin now, when will it begin? It's, we, have the, we live with this myth which is, oh, when I've got money, it'll be easy for me to give. Wrong. Dead wrong. The more you have, the harder it is. Begin while you've got just a couple of leptons, a couple of coins to rub together. Begin now. 
For Amy and I, this began in our early 20s, as I said, and, and Amy was in the home of the, uh, the pastor. He would invite some of us around for dinner at the end. We didn't realize at the time how strategic it was. Uh, this was all people who were, uh, who were there who would maybe he had sort of a, a sense that they were going to be part of the church or going to contribute something to the life of the church, and we'd begun, both of us, to be part of what God was doing there. And in the midst of it, he said, hey, just, you know, a glass of wine at Sunday night in London, and he just said to Amy, just looked over and said, hey, it's been great, uh, you've just become part of it. Are you giving yet? There's a few people gathered around there. It was, it was a little awkward. Are you giving yet? And then he was like, <clears throat> uh, uh, where's, my, where's my wallet? Uh, no, I'm not yet. He said, oh, you should, you, should, you should start giving. You should start giving. You should start giving. And she said, you know what? Yeah, I should, I will. And that practice, though not necessarily the way that I would operate, that practice has sustained her ever since. It was around that time I began the same thing. For me, it was slightly different. My parents, uh, I was aware of their practice of giving. And I remember one Sunday, while we were still in that same church in central London, I remember my dad and mum visiting us, and there was a particular Sunday like this one, a giving Sunday. And I remember at the end of the service, my mum and I were at the back, and we are both sort of more toward the introvert end of the spectrum. So when church is over, church is over. You know what I mean? None of this uh, open mic night business. <laughs> like a bat out of hell, we were gone. That's a meatloaf. That's a meatloaf record. <laughs> and my dad was sat down, head down. I was like, Mum, what's he doing? And my mum said something I'll never forget. She said, Johnny, it's, it's a giving talk, isn't it? He just can't help himself. I thought to myself, Wow, he can't help himself. Wouldn't it be amazing to become the kind of man who can't help himself but give? I want to be that person. And if you want to begin, uh, be that person, it begins now. Join the crowd. We crowdfund our friends and let's continue to do it. Let's crowdfund the kingdom. Giving is communal. It needs to be regular, but it's communal. And thirdly, it's personal. It says it, many rich people, many rich people, and then one widow. Many rich people gave all this stuff and one widow. And they weren't the same. And I don't think Jesus is critiquing the people who give out of abundance, but he's, he sees the individual. He sees the personal journey. Ultimately, it's not some, giving is not about some standard, standard number that God is aiming at. Or that Amy and I are aiming at for our church or for our people. We're just saying, look, this is, this is personal. It does depend on each person. Some here in the temple give extraordinary amounts and some, such as this widow, give much less. It is personal. Now, I didn't say private. I didn't say private. It's not, it's not always to be private. There is a conversation sometimes with others about what this looks like. But it is deeply personal. And actually we see this in Acts 2. The giving is in accordance with what people have. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. The assumption here is that there will be people who would be carrying a greater burden in terms of quantity. But Jesus isn't primarily looking at the quantity. He's looking at the quality He's looking at what's happening in an in a individual, in a person's heart. And that's why he picks out this widow. Now this widow is fascinating because she has two 
coins. And these coins are the lightest coins available in the, cur- in the currency. Two copper coins. They're known as lepton. And she gives these freely. That's her gift. It's a lot less, but she has given it freely. And for us, my encouragement is to give personally and to give prayerfully. Just toward the end of the service, we're going to have an opportunity to pray and fill out an envelope and to ask God, what is it you're asking me for? Not what is it that if I were in the shoes of the person next to me, I'd give. But what is it you might be asking from me? And whether it's five pounds or 5,000 pounds a month, it doesn't matter, it's not the point. The question is, have I listened to God? Have I heard him? And am I willing to step out in faith? It is a personal thing. Finally, our giving needs to move towards a place where we give totally. Our giving, uh, we pray, would be total. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, we see in this widow's example that her giving is total in the sense that it is deeply sacrificial. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Her giving is total in the sense that she gives the totality of what she has. This is an uber-sacrificial act. Now, she'd be, she'd be provided for for her daily food in the synagogue. She wasn't going to starve. That's where she'd be cared for as a widow. That is in her local synagogue. She'd be provided for. But this is everything she has to her name. These are her life savings. And when you think about the fact she had two coins... It is absolutely mind-blowing. She could have given one. If she'd have given one, she'd have been giving 50%. Five times the tithe. And that would have been scandalous generosity. But one is not enough for her. She's so moved in devotion by the presence of God in the temple, she just empties her hands and empties her heart to God and gives everything she has. This kind of giving, few of us will ever touch it. But what an image and a picture of a life of generosity for us to aim at. Many of us will give out of our abundance. We are wealthier than any group of people in human history. We have so much, even those of us who are struggling relative to many, relative to the vast majority of people, both in human history and in the world today, we are so wealthy. I don't say that to make any of us feel any sense of judgment or any sense of shame. It's just a fact. We have so much. But we're moving, we're to be moved toward a Gestures which create a posture of open-handedness. And we see this both in this woman's example and in the early church. Scandalous sacrifice. Heard a story from one of our team. Love this story. Heard loads of stories from members of our team uh, just in the last week. But this one I'll share with you. Uh, Said uh, a couple of weeks ago, I met one of the guys that used to come with us to Saturday morning breakfast. He's a homeless man and he's struggling a lot lately. 
I met him and I had in my pocket just 10 pounds. And I was thinking to go and buy something for the evening to eat. When I met him, I felt to spend time together and I invited him to come and have dinner with me. In the same moment, I was thinking about the fact that I would not have enough money for both of us. And in a way, my mind started to think, ah, maybe I shouldn't do that. I'm not in a good financial situation and I won't have enough money to eat tonight. But a strong sense of peace came down in my heart and I decided to buy dinner for him. While he was eating, we were having a very good chat and when I left him, he was smiling. When I came back home, I received a text from a family at the church and there was a picture with a shopping bag full of food. The text said, we'll provide you all with fruit at the start of every week. We'll deliver it to you on a Sunday morning for the next year. Amazing. I think this is a picture of what God wants to do. You know, you do not have because you do not ask. Psalm 81, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of slavery. Open up your mouth and I will fill it. It's like for our friend here, it's like God was saying, I'm just waiting for your hands to be open. If you empty your hands, I'll fill them and I'll fill you with more than a tenner. And the testimony of God's people has been again and again and again that as we open up our hands in generosity, he fills them with more abundance. I spoke to a couple this morning. They came to me at the end of the sermon and they said, you should have had us up there. And I said, well, if you'd have told me a story before I preached it, I might have. And they said, look, 10 years ago, we were in 650,000 pounds of debt. Mortgage debt, we were... uh, Not just mortgages, though, we were in negative equity of 650,000 pounds. And they said, and 10 years ago, we made the decision to begin tithing, to begin giving to the life of the church. And a number of our friends in the church said, you shouldn't do this. They said, no, we began to do that. And 10 years later, that situation has completely reversed. We're, We're now in the same amount of money in positive equity in our houses. A million pounds in 10 years. And they say, look, actually it began, the switch began when we began to give. Now, I'm not saying, we're not giving because it's some kind of get-rich-quick scheme. That's not what I'm saying. By the way, 10 years isn't that quick. I'm saying this, if we trust God, he will not leave us alone. He will provide. And what it comes down to here is a discipline of faith. Her giving is total. All right, let's bring this thing into land. We started out by saying that our gestures develop postures in our lives. And I don't believe this is ever more true than it is in this particular area. Giving begets giving. Generosity creates generosity. And it's as we practice financial giving that we develop a posture of generosity for ourselves, but more than that, I believe an environment of grace, an environment of generosity around us. And as I was just reflecting, even this morning uh, before preaching, on this second text, this text in Acts, where it talks about devotion to Scripture, it talks about a spirit-filled fellowship, Uh, People who aren't lonely, uh, people who are connected deeply. It talks about uh, sharing food together. It talks about prayer, prayer meetings where you don't fall asleep, where you come alive. It talks about signs and wonders, and it talks about open-handed generosity. I felt the Lord say to me, Johnny, they're connected. 
I felt the Lord say, Johnny, there are things I want to do in this church in, in, some, of the, uh, in some of the spiritual ways. There are, there are miracles I want to release in this church and in this city that require you as a church to go on a journey of generosity, that require you to create a, an environment and a, a culture of, of radical and scandalous generosity. Do you trust me in it? And I'm not beginning to preach that to you saying that I've arrived. I know this is an area of tension in my life. I can honestly say to you, I have more freedom in the area of financial generosity than I ever imagined possible. 15 years into regular monthly giving. But there is more for me. And I want to be in a radically, a complete uh, shifted place in 15 years to the place I'm at now. And I want that for you because I want a culture of generosity here that begins to shift the atmosphere of this city. Everything we want to see out there, we have to embody first in here. And one of the ways that we do that is by opening up our hands to God. This is not, I close with this, this is not about becoming someone who is acceptable to God. God has already accepted you. He has sent his son Jesus to die for you. He sent his spirit to empower you and fill you so that you can know and experience intimacy with him through and through. And he's given you the church, the community of God's spirit-filled people so that you might know you belong to his family. In terms of giving, you will never outgive him. He's already all in. What might it look like for you to respond and begin a posture with some gestures of response to him in this area? Let's pray.